A new report on state testing finds low expectations for disabled students. Medicaid reform is on the horizon in Tennessee. The United Kingdom addresses how to accommodate employees with menopause. A North Carolina hospital takes legal action to move a person with quadriplegia to an out-of-state nursing home. Disability advocates assert New York City's government has attempted to renege on a 2013 settlement promise to increase accessible taxi cabs. And we will check in with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson and his client Westchester disabled on the move regarding Lyft's alleged lack of wheelchair accessible vehicles in Westchester County, New York. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro. And this is Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. Good evening. In federal disability news, many of us remember taking standardized tests at school year's end to determine our level of material comprehension. Yet for students with disabilities, new data has found that testing expectations for them have been lowered. Under the Federal Elementary and Secondary Education Act, only 1% of all students in a state may take an assessment covering, quote, alternate academic standards, end quote. According to a news report from Disability Scoop's Michelle Diamant released yesterday, quote, modified tests are less rigorous than the general grade-level math and reading exams mandated for most children, end quote. But a new report issued by disability rights advocates has found 33 states out of compliance, with more students being given the alternate assessment than permitted by law. While the majority of states requested permission to go over the 1% limit, Eight states have proceeded to raise the limit of alternate assessments administered without informing the Department of Education first. Denise Marshall, CEO of the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, or COPPA, a nonprofit advocating for students with disabilities, said in a statement to Disability Scoop's Diamond that, quote, if students are inappropriately given the alternate assessment, they may not graduate with a regular high school diploma or gain access to post-secondary programs, which may lead to fewer employment options, end quote. The COPPA, along with additional advocacy groups who issued the report, plans to meet with Department of Education officials soon about further enforcing the 1% alternative assessment rule. In disability legislation news, a new bill has been proposed in Tennessee to improve access to health insurance coverage for employees with disabilities. The bill, called the, quote, 10 Care for Working Individuals with Disabilities Act, entails the creation of a, quote, buy-in program, end quote, for working individuals with disabilities. Under the program, quote, a person with a disability would pay 5% of their annual income for program enrollment while protecting their assets for retirement, end quote. At this time, a person with more than $200,000 in such assets does not qualify for Medicaid in Tennessee. According to an article published February 24th in the Chattanooga Times Free Press, quote, Tennessee is one of four states that doesn't have a program allowing for adults with a disability to buy into the state Medicaid program, which in Tennessee is known as TenCare, end quote. Disability advocates in the state went on to say in the same article that the new program would ensure the eligibility of, quote, an estimated 1,000 to 1,500 working Tennesseans with disabilities, end quote. In international disability news, a civil rights branch in the United Kingdom has requested businesses across the country acknowledge menopause as a disability. In a statement issued by the country's Equality and Human Rights Commission, or EHRC, which enforces civil rights throughout the nation, quote, if menopause symptoms have a long-term and substantial impact on a woman's ability to carry out normal day-to-day -day activities, 
they may be considered a disability. Under the Equality Act 2010, an employer will be under a legal obligation to make reasonable adjustments and to not discriminate against a worker with menopause, end quote. In a definition by John Hopkins University, quote, menopause is the phase of a woman's life when it is no longer possible for said woman to have children, with the average age of occurrence being 51, though it may occur as early as one's 30s. During menopause, levels of the chemical estrogen, which maintains a woman's reproductive system, drop, resulting in symptoms such as irritability, hot flashes, and sleep difficulty, according to a Washington Post February 22nd article on the UK reforms. The EHRC report contains videos addressed to employers, with reforms including providing employees impacted by menopause with, quote, an appropriate working environment temperature, quiet rooms and rest areas, working from home if possible, and allowing for the wearing of cooler clothing, end quote. The report warns that failing to make adjustments could constitute discrimination and result in potential lawsuits against employers. But skeptics to the move expressed concern in the Washington Post article about how much employers can do, given the variety of symptoms of menopause an employee may experience, and how much said employee may wish to disclose to their employer, especially within the context of workplace advancement. In disability law news, a teenager with quadriplegia fears that her civil rights may soon be in jeopardy. In response to a lawsuit filed by Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Hospital, 18-year-old Alexis Radcliffe, who has lived at the hospital for five years, contends that although she wishes to leave the hospital, she would prefer to live independently in a home close to her family and friends in Salem, North Carolina. This is in direct contrast to Atrium Health's plan requiring that Radcliffe be moved to a nursing home in Virginia due to the unavailability of nursing home options in North Carolina. In an NPR story from February 22nd by disability news reporter Joseph Shapiro, quote, After becoming paralyzed in a car accident in February 2008, Radcliffe was taken to Atrium Baptist, where she was treated for her injuries, before being moved to her family's home, where she received around-the-clock care paid for by North Carolina Medicaid. But when her grandfather entered an assisted living facility due to declining health in January 2019, 13-year-old Radcliffe took up residence in the hospital that saved her life 11 years before. Although the hospital had previously tried to move her to nursing homes in other states far away from North Carolina, a judge blocked the transfer until Radcliffe reached the age of 18. Last August, one day after her 18th birthday, Radcliffe learned hospital officials were planning to move her to the adult sector of the hospital and that she was to be moved to a Virginia nursing home if she did not check out soon. But according to her lawyers, with no loved ones to help her decide, Radcliffe agreed to the transfer out of fear, end quote. In September, the hospital filed a lawsuit asserting that Radcliffe was trespassing by refusing to leave the hospital and accept transfer to Virginia. But Atrium Health's choosing to move Radcliffe to a nursing home rather than providing an option for communal living calls into question the operation of the North Carolina Medicaid Agency in general since all state Medicaid providers across the country are required to offer patients care in, quote, the most integrated and appropriate setting if possible, end quote. Such a phrase comes from the 1999 Supreme Court ruling Olmstead v. L.C., which ruled that state hospital residents Lois Curtis and Elaine Wilson had a right to communal rather than institutional care under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Radcliffe maintains that she needs to stay in the hospital until an integrated community care option is open. 
but with a national shortage of available nurses and aides or direct support professionals available to provide around-the-clock care, such an option will take time to materialize. What's more, federal data cited by Shapiro found that, quote, as of September 2023, 6,594 people aged 30 and under are still living in American nursing homes, end quote. On the other side of the argument, former Atrium Health Vice Academic Officer Dr. Kevin High was quoted in Shapiro's news piece as arguing that since, quote, Radcliffe's health was stable and that long-term care was therefore not needed, end quote, she did not need to stay at the hospital. Dr. High went on to cite lengthy waiting periods for beds as a reason why Radcliffe could not stay. As of this moment, a November court's decision has blocked Atrium Health from moving Radcliffe to the out-of-state nursing home. Radcliffe's goal upon leaving the hospital is to pursue an in-person college degree, but says she will need to live near Salem College, which awarded her a full scholarship and is located near her family. Ms. Radcliffe is currently enrolled in online classes offered by the college. Turning northward and leading into our next segment, Disability rights activists addressed a federal judge in New York City last week concerning a 2013 settlement, which concerned a lack of accessible taxicabs, and the activists ordered said judge to issue an order to the mayor's office, requiring compliance with the settlement. In 2013, New York City officials settled a class action lawsuit by promising that at least half of all yellow cabs on city streets would be accessible by 2020, though only 32% of city cabs are accessible as of the most recent report issued last year. Although COVID extended the deadline to 2023, the city government has been unable to reach the necessary threshold of accessibility and appears to be attempting an escape from the settlement stipulations. Last month, disability rights activists met with mayoral officials who had sent a letter to the court urging relief from the settlement. The activists argued that, quote, the representatives implied their intention for relief from the settlement, end quote. In a statement to the New York Daily News, New York Taxi Cab and Limousine Commission spokesman Jason Kirsten said, quote, we are committed to accessibility and currently are drafting proposed rules to make wheelchair accessible taxis more affordable for operators. When you factor in our entire fleet, we now have almost three times the number of accessible vehicles than we did five years ago. And in continuing our coverage of the controversy surrounding an alleged lack of wheelchair-accessible vehicles nationwide by rideshare companies, we turn to an interview conducted with representatives from Westchester Disabled on the Move, a nonprofit which is suing the rideshare company Lyft over a lack of wheelchair-accessible vehicles in Westchester County, New York. Last week, WDOMI's attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson confirmed in a correspondence that the case is heading for trial this July, following an evidentiary hearing held earlier this month in federal court. In a statement provided to Disabulletin, a spokesperson for Lyft stated, quote, Lyft has a long-standing commitment to maintaining an inclusive and welcoming community, and we're constantly seeking solutions to address wave supply challenges, end quote. Mr. Fry Pearson joined us for this interview last July alongside his colleague Aaron Kelly, the plaintiff in this case Harriet Lowell, and former Westchester Disabled on the Move Executive Director Mel Tansman each of whom shared their connection to the case and their reasons for pursuing it. 
Westchester disabled on the move versus the rideshare company Lyft, a case which originated in 2018 regarding Lyft's lack of WAVs or wheelchair accessible vehicles in the area of West Plains, New York. Today, I am joined by two representatives of the law firm that is conducting this case, Jeremiah Fry Pearson and Aaron Kelly, and also the main plaintiff in this case, Ms. Harriet Lowell. Great to have all of you on the program today. And and we also have Mel Tansman of Westchester, Westchester Disabled on the Move. And Abe, we're very excited to be here and we're, we're glad you're shedding light on this case. Absolutely. And welcome back to uh, Jeremiah as well. I know that we, uh, we spoke a few months ago about this case and uh, the initial developments as well. What led to this uh, organization taking on a big entity like Lyft? Mel, do you want to talk about that? It really started for us, I guess it was 2016 or 2017, where uh, Lyft, as well as all the ride-sharing services, were trying to get a state law passed, which would allow them to you know, spread throughout New York. People need transportation, but what we did have an issue with was the availability of wheelchair-accessible vehicles. So we got involved at that point. There was a panel that was set up after they passed the law uh, that talked about a lot about accessibility. And that's when we really got involved with it. I mean, I've gotten many calls throughout my 20-year career from people visiting New York who uh, use wheelchairs. And um, often... I didn't have much to offer unless they could rent a vehicle and lift as an essential part of the transportation system. And Harriet's story, um, who's also a lead plaintiff, is is also really powerful. So Harriet, if you want to talk about what kind of got you into this and and your passion. Um, Yes. Hi. I'm really glad to be here. Back in 2017, Jeremiah and I were working on getting accessible taxis in New York City and Lyft and Uber were coming in and I was discussing my personal struggles because I am a non-driving scooter user and my husband drives me, but he can't always do that and it's a real problem. And so that's what led to this case. There have been times when my husband was like in the hospital, he had a pulmonary embolism actually twice. I couldn't get to the hospital because, you know, he couldn't drive me. He was in the hospital. And many other less dire things happen. But, you know, if I need to go someplace and I want to go on my own, I should be able to. If you're a scooter user, they're electric. So if you go out in rain or snow, you can't really do that. They could short circuit or they could slip. Even if I was going nearby, I might need a lift. And there are a lot of people like me in this area and, and throughout America. And there's really no reason why we should be served the same way as everybody else. I should have the same rights that any other person has, you know, non-disabled people, you know, throughout Westchester and throughout America. So that's that's what started it. And it's, it's taken this long to get here. But hopefully we'll get justice soon. And one, one thing I'd like to add, it became very personal for Westchester Disabled on the Move when a person who was a consumer at the time but later on became a board member told a story to us. There was a freak early snowstorm. I think it must have been 2018. He used the wheelchair. He had uh, muscular dystrophy and 
he had been out at his doctor's appointment at a clinic in Mount Vernon. When the freak snowstorm happened, paratransit, which he usually used, canceled because the line system, which is the regular bus system, closed all its routes down. So when the B-line system goes down, so does the paratransit. So he found himself stranded in Mount Vernon when he had to get home, and uh, he couldn't go on the streets in his power wheelchair, and there was too much snow and too much of a mess at the time. And the only way they could get him home eventually was to first take him to the emergency room of a hospital. In other words, having to call an ambulance as if he had an emergency and had to be assessed in an emergency room. Uh, if not admitted. So that was a frustrating process. We lost him last year. Uh, muscular dystrophy is usually something that takes people's lives. So it did become very personal to us. Ansel was a remarkable human being. And when you get to know the people and the people impacted by it, it does become a very personal struggle for you. And I know as well that the Taxi and Limousine Commission of New York is one of the primary regulatory uh, agencies, right, regarding transportation uh, in the state. Is that correct? New York State regulation is very complex. The TLC authority in New York City is wonderful in forcing Lyft to provide wave service. Lyft provides wave service in New York City that is qualitatively better than their standard service in much of the country. Outside of New York City, Lyft has been able successfully to avoid any regulation that forces it to provide wave service, which is why they block. As soon as the cars drive out of New York City, Lyft blocks and providing wave service. And unfortunately, no regulatory body has stepped up and directly fixed that. Although we have heard from many people who wrote laws like the New York State Human Rights Law and say, we wrote that to cover companies like Lyft, um, and our court case is how we're going to force Lyft to follow the law. Now, is there a summary that uh, that you could provide for us, Jeremiah, and uh, perhaps uh, our representatives of WDOMI, of some of the summary regarding the specific ADA regulations where this lawsuit applies? I know you said ADA, uh, but is there a specific title uh, where this might fall under. I know, Jeremiah, this is your big uh, specialty, but I also welcome uh, some of our uh, Westchester uh, Disabled on the Move representatives as well to uh, jump in. I have a wonderful team of lawyers who get into the statutes far more than I have, and I also suffer from dyslexia. Um, but I'm pretty sure this is a case which forces private entities, and in particular public accommodations, to serve people with disabilities. I always dyslexify Title II and Title III, but I'm pretty sure we're under Title III. And the ADA, which was passed by President George H.W. Bush, a Republican in 1991, after a result of a lot of fighting and lobbying, of which Mel was a part of, um, the primary surviving person who fought for the ADA is actually a big supporter of ours who submitted an affidavit in this case. Um, but the basic point of the ADA is if you operate a public accommodation, you have to make reasonable accommodations to your services to allow people with disabilities to have the opportunity to participate. And Lyft's position is, first, that it's not a public accommodation, which is insane. Second, it's not a, a transportation provider, which is insane. And third, there's nothing it can do to serve people with disabilities 
in the 96% of the country where it refuses to serve people with disabilities. And that's insane because in 4% of the country, it does. So how hard is it just to do what you do in the 4% in the other 96%? We believe when we get down to the merits, um, we're going to prevail. And one other thing, I, I think issues like um, access to justice and disability rights really aren't political issues. They shouldn't be. Um, President Bush was a Republican. It was a Democratic Congress that helped him pass it. Our judge who certified this as a nationwide class action and appointed Harriet and Westchester Sable on the move to lead the class of people with disabilities, he was appointed by a Republican, um, but he's doing the right thing because under the law, Lyft has to serve people with disabilities. They have to do it morally. They have to do it legally. We've been fighting him for five years. We'll fight him for another five if we have to. But I'm excited to tell you that I think a year from now, we're going to have a trial verdict and I think we're going to win. Um, so I think it is my hope that by this time next year, wherever you are in the country, if you're a wheelchair accessible vehicle user, Lyft will not be able to refuse to serve you. There's a toggle I remember you mentioning uh, that can be turned on and off uh, in certain areas. Now, how does that work and why might it be difficult to implement this feature or is it difficult at all? It's, it's not difficult at all. What Lyft does is in the 4% of the country, if you say, hey, I have a wheelchair accessible vehicle and you're a Lyft driver, then Lyft makes it known that there's a wheelchair accessible vehicle that's available. And if you need a wheelchair accessible vehicle, you can call it. Um, in 96% of the country, Lyft blocks you from saying, hey, I have a wheelchair accessible vehicle or hey, I need a wheelchair accessible vehicle. Um, one ironic thing is one day Lyft's um, programming got messed up and it turned its blocker off in Denver. And all of a sudden, all these people were like, hey, I have a wheelchair accessible vehicle. I want to give a ride in Denver. But in Denver, Lyft isn't forced to provide this service. So what did Lyft do? Did it allow the rides to happen? No, no, no. It dropped everything and kept blocking. Um, so all we're at, we're actually our expert um, help force Lyft to provide good service in New York City. And we're going to, we have detailed proposals for how Lyft can provide the best service. But our first request is really simple. Lyft needs to stop blocking wave service everywhere in the country. That will cost Lyft virtually no money and the result will be transformative. And it would be good if Lyft, which pretends to be a progressive company, stopped discriminating. The other thing is we don't expect that Lyft is going to be a perfect service. I don't believe there is a perfect service, especially for providing transportation for people with disabilities. What we want is that to be one of many choices because when systems fail, it's always important to have a backup. So Lyft would provide that if they had wheelchair accessible vehicles. One thing I want to just emphasize is how much has gone into this case. We've had organizations like Paralyzed Veterans of America provide their testimony to the court. And Paralyzed Veterans of America has a powerful story to tell, right? These are heroes who, fighting for our freedom, fighting in our wars abroad, in many circumstances, lost their ability to walk, right? They became paralyzed. And so they're fighting for the rule of law. And then they come back to this country and a multi-billion dollar corporation says the rule of law doesn't apply to it and it can discriminate against them. And all of those people, including paralyzed veterans of America who stood up in federal court and said, no, under the ADA, we wanna be served. 
their voices have been heard by the judge. And when we go to trial, I think their voices are going to be heard and we're going to we're going to make real change. You know, we know they can do it in the cities where they've had to. That proves it's not impossible. It's not. And it is the law. That's the other thing. You know, they're, they're not allowed to discriminate. They, they're not grandfathered. It does not have to be perfect service. Nothing perfect exists anywhere. People with disabilities are very used to things going wrong. Unfortunately, that is part of our day-to-day -day reality. And it might be terrifying, but we have to deal with it. We leave the house and we do things, but we want Lyft to serve us. And we certainly don't want them to give the sort of slipshot service they, they have done in the past. But you know, if this is not undoable. So really what it comes down to is just asking Lyft to turn off the toggles or to turn off uh, the toggle system per se, or uh, is there specifically a system that uh, many of you have in mind uh, for having Lyft allocate more wheelchair accessible vehicles? Uh, it's it's actually, Abe, it's to turn off the blocker. The toggle is a different thing that Lyft uses, and I apologize because you asked about it and I um, I didn't go into detail on that. In some of the cities where Lyft has been forced to provide wheelchair accessible vehicle service, it uses the toggle to suppress service. And briefly, what the toggle is, is all ride modes appear on, mo except for wheelchair accessible vehicles in every every other ride mode that Lyft has, will appear automatically on your phone if it's available. So you can pull up your phone and you can see Lyft Green, you can see Lyft Lux, you can see Lyft XL, they'll just automatically appear. But in some cities, Lyft has, does it so to find wave service, you have to use a toggle, which is this complicated series of hoops you have to jump through in order to find wave service. Um, in New York City, they ordered Lyft not to use the toggle and wave service increased by 500%. So one of the things that we're asking for is once Lyft stops nationwide discrimination and turns off the blocker, they shouldn't be allowed to turn on the toggle and suppress wave service. Those are all things we're going to be asking the judge for. But the first and most important thing is just stop blocking service. I, I, I'm not a client of Lyft because I knew that they don't serve people. This is something that has been discussed a lot in the disability community. Um, many people have tried to use them. I knew that they didn't serve people in, in White Plains. You know, I knew that that, that was not an option. Um, that's why I didn't join Lyft. Do you want to talk about your experience trying to visit your husband in the hospital and how, you know, what how your life would be improved if Lyft didn't refuse to serve you? He's had a lot of um, joint surgeries. And, and um, you know, I can't get myself there. I can't, you know, the the worst was the pulmonary embolism, you know, when he was um, dragged out here. The second one was during COVID even. And, you know, I couldn't go visit him. And, I couldn't get there and I couldn't get home. And, you know, I have friends in New York where I grew up, but I live in White Plains. I can't go see them unless, you know, my husband drives me, which is very degrading. I mean, he's wonderful and I appreciate it, but there are times, you know, we don't want to, even together, we might like to go to a concert and not have to deal with parking. You know, we were thinking about that, that it would be easier some, at times to take a lift, even if it costs more. But we would be willing to do that at times, you know, or if I wanted to go to another town there, you know, I'm a disability activist, I'm chair of the White Plains Mayor's Committee for People with Disabilities. There are events in other towns, but I can't always attend because I can't get there. There's so many things that I could be doing that aren't within scooting distance, 
you know, that I can do on my own. And I would like to feel more like an adult, you know, I'm a senior. <laughs> it would be really nice just to be like a normal person and I should have that right. But yeah, it's very hard. It, it means a lot of adjusting and coordinating that adults shouldn't have to do. Yeah, I'd like to add on to what Harriet just said. Right now, if, let's say, um, a resident of uh, Yonkers wants to go to a city council, usually they don't start till 7 or 8 p.m. So it's important that they become an integral part of the community. And lift services could really affect that. The other thing which has always struck me is that, you know, people who don't use wheelchairs like Jeremiah or myself, we can at the spur of a moment meet a friend at a restaurant or a friend will call and say, oh, you want to go to see a movie? We can do that. A person in a wheelchair cannot because even if they use paratransit, you have to plan like two days in advance. So people with disabilities are not allowed the freedom that um, you know people who are temporarily able-bodied um, to do something at a whim. Um, why not, if it can be provided? This bulletin is created and produced by me, Abe Shapiro. Our theme music is Baseball is More Than a Game by the George Romanis Sound. Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.